in Psalm 42. While you're finding that place, let me say thank you uh, to you, to your leadership, just for affording me the privilege of coming and being a part uh, of your worship gathering. I count this a privilege and I've looked forward to it. So thank you very much. The psalmist is the human author, of course, but he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that makes this God's word for us. So we get to hear his voice this morning. Let's see what he says. Psalm 42, I'm just going to read over you the first five verses. Let me just tell you, those five verses are representative of really what happens in not only the rest of Psalm 42, but the following Psalm, Psalm 43 as well. Uh, And so this is what it says. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, (laughs) where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What are you longing for this morning? What would you say is the deepest or maybe at least one of the deepest burdens of your soul? Some of us this morning are longing for something different to happen in our culture, right? We see a world spinning out of control. It seems to be uh, coming unraveled at the scene. Our burden is for something to happen and the sexual perversion that is happening, uh, violence that is escalating, wars and rumors of wars. Maybe you're, maybe you're longing this morning for something to happen in our country amidst political upheaval and corruption, all of the infighting, the heightened violence in our own streets, racism that maybe many thought we were done with a long time ago and on and on we could go. Maybe, maybe some are longing this morning for our country to be restored to the respect that it once had among the nations. Or maybe our convention. Maybe you're longing this day is to see something good happen in our convention in the midst of disunity, sexual abuse, scandal, wanting to see some things fixed. Maybe your church, maybe there is a longing to see 
something happen that maybe, maybe you haven't seen recently, maybe a longing to see these pews fixed full, maybe a longing to see unity restored, Maybe your longing is in your personal circumstances. Many of you this morning bring deep hurt, comes with it desire, maybe for physical healing, struggling with health problems, maybe, uh, maybe broken relationships, rebellious children, parents or grandparents that don't know the Lord, maybe a job situation, what, what is your deepest longing today? On and on we could go with possibilities. There are many more. But I just want to submit to you this morning that all of those that we could mention are really only symptoms, aren't they? They're symptoms of a greater need that we have in all of those arenas, including our own lives, our individual lives. Something that that we need to be desperate for more than we are desperate for anything else. And that is the desperation I think that this psalm talks about. We're turned on to it by three um, uh, particular elements. This is not the outline of the message. It's still introductory, but it's important for us to get it. One of those elements is, it's obvious, is it not, that this psalm is about desperation. I mean, I want you to look at your Bible and see it in verse 1. It's in every verse. In verse 1, he's talking about panting. The word's mentioned twice. A word in the language of the Old Testament that means the deepest longing of the soul. In verse 2, he talks about thirsting. In verse 3, he's talking about his tears crying. In verse 4, he's, he's talking about pouring out his soul in the second phrase there. Verse 5, he mentions being cast down. He also mentions being in turmoil. You can't read this psalm without understanding that this is a psalm of desperation on the part of the psalmist. But secondly, it's a psalm of desperation for someone, isn't it? And this is really the key. And that desperation, listen to me, come in here real close, is for none other than our God. Notice he's mentioned in every one of these verses. My soul pants for you, O God. Verse 2, my soul thirsts for God. In verse 3, a question. You know, they're saying, the secular world is saying, where is your God? It says in verse 4, he's remembering the time he went with the procession to the house of God. And in verse 5, he's saying, hope in God. God is the feature. He's the object of this psalm. It is a psalm of desperation for that one, that someone, listen to me, that we must long for and be desperate for more than anything else. The one who is the key to us seeing satisfaction and fulfillment in any other area of our lives. This is a psalm about desperation for God. But it's also a psalm about desperation 
for not just someone, but some place. And this is really important. I want you to see this. The psalmist here um, in this passage of scripture is in a predicament. And that predicament is it's festival time. It was time for the Jewish people to, to grow, go in processions, to come from the villages and the outer areas, to come from different places in Jerusalem and to make a pilgrimage to the temple. This is where they were headed because that temple is where they felt like they met God in a special way. But the psalmist couldn't get there. He's trapped on the backside of the Jordan Desert somewhere, unable to be a part of one of those processions, unable to get to where everybody else was, and most importantly, unable to be a part of a throng of people that was going to meet God in a very special way. Now, we've got to do something right there in order for us to understand this psalm correctly and see what the Holy Spirit would be saying to us. And that is we've got to pause right there and ask the question, well, what does that look like on this side of the cross? Because you see, we, we know that, that, number one, there's no temple in existence anymore right now. And number two, that God doesn't dwell in buildings uh, made by men. This is not a temple here where we're worshiping together. We, we don't don't think, do we, that the presence of God is limited to a particular location. So here we come to the Old Testament and we come to this particular psalm and it's a psalm about a longing to get to the temple in order to meet God. What are we going to do with that? Well, let me just remind you about what that looks like on the side of the cross. We'll not take time to turn to these passages this morning, but I would remind you about John chapter 2 and the religious leaders said to Jesus, what sign will you give us that you are who you say you are? And Jesus said to them, well, pointing to the temple, obviously, we'll tear down this, you know, this, this uh, temple and I'll, I'll rebuild it in three, three days. And that kind of caught them off guard a little bit and took them back. And they said, that's kind of ridiculous. It took 46 years to build this temple. How do you think you can rebuild it in three days? And you remember what John tells us? John says, but he was, he was talking to them about the temple of his body, right? So Jesus is the temple on this side of the cross. Jesus is, he is the, the place of the presence of God. But that's not all the New Testament tells us. 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul says what? He says, you're the temple. When I say you, I mean you that are believers in Jesus Christ this morning. Every one of us who names the name of Christ has truly repented of our sins, placed our faith in Jesus. Paul says, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that one of the coolest things ever that when you get saved, God takes up residence in your life, not just part of God, but all of God. You, me, we are the temple of the God of the universe. Ephesians chapter two, Paul takes it and says that further. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles being brought together in this thing God is doing. And you know what he's doing? He's, 
He's putting different kinds of people from different tribes and races and tongues and languages, young and old, different ethnicities and different socioeconomic uh, uh, statuses and, 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 and people from all walks of life. He's taking them and he's bringing them together. And Paul says at the end of Ephesians chapter 2, he is building them together into a holy temple, he says, for the Lord. You know what that means? Jesus is the temple, yes. When Jesus gets inside of you and inside of me, we become the temple. But then God is doing something in bringing us together as a people of faith and and we together. Listen, we the church are the temple. But the New Testament is not done. Some of you know, and I'll just read you this one. One of the last chapters of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21 and John's vision of the new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem. Do you remember what he says? Listen to this. Verse 22 of Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I hope you're longing for that day. That day when that Old Testament temple will reach its fullest condition. And that is where we get to fellowship in all of eternity as worshipers of God Almighty in Jesus Christ. And his presence will be the order of the day. Now you see it's important For us to understand and listen to me, apply this passage of scripture in Psalm 42 to be looking through that lens. Because we're not like the psalmist who was out in the desert, unable to get to a physical temple where where he and all of the Jewish people believe God dwelled in in a special way, in a particular way. So I want you to I want you to read this psalm through that lens and and listen to me. I want you to process this longing, this desperation this morning. And I want us to get this from this text, and that is that believers in Jesus Christ, watch it now. Believers in Jesus Christ must be desperate for the presence of God. Now, but then in particular, in its fullness when Jesus comes back to get us. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you five challenges, Christ Baptist, as individuals, as a people of faith in this local body of Christ, as a people that are are, are part of a larger association of churches known as the Southern Baptist Convention, and as a, a convention of people that exist in the United States of America and and in this secular culture that we live in. And I, I want to say to you, these are challenges for us to be able to nurture and navigate a desperation for the presence of God. Here's number one. Avoid your adversary. Avoid your adversary. 
Psalm 40, 42 verse 1, the psalmist says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. This verse has been grossly misunderstood. When I was growing up, there was a contemporary worship song that was actually based upon this passage. I'm not a singer, so I'm not going to sing it to you. Uh, that would clear the place real quick. But uh, some of you may remember it. It just had this very soft and kind of gentle flow. As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O oh God. And it was a fun song to sing. But it was a, a pretty bad interpretation of the psalm on which it was based. You know why? Because this, this is no light scene here. This is no story of Bamber and Bambi and Thumper running through the forest just longing for a cool drink of water on a hot spring day. This, this was a scene of violence. Hence his desperation. The psalmist was on the run. And the only thing he could identify with, the only thing he could identify with was a deer out there that, listen to me, was tired and thirsty for one particular reason. You know what that was? He was being hunted. The deer was on the run for his life. And the psalmist said, that's the way I am right now. And we know that, by the way, if you'll just look down in this chapter to verses 9 and 10. The psalmist says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the, look at it. What does it say? Enemy, right? Verse 10, and with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Do you know why the psalmist couldn't get to the festival? You know why he couldn't get to the pilgrimage? Is because he was being hunted. There was a there was a a group of hunters with a pack of dogs, a quiver full of arrows on their back that were trying to take him out. He was on the run for his life. But I want you to notice being on the run is what made him thirsty. Being on the run is what made him desperate. Now, what are we going to do with that? Well, I'll tell you one of the things we, we need to do with that in our day and time that fosters, come in here real close, that fosters our desperation and it fosters our longing is that we, in essence, are to be a people who are on the run. You say on the run from what? on the run from our adversary. Our adversary, the devil. Some of you might say at this point, oh, wait a second, what do you mean? We have victory in Christ. And yes, we do. But Jesus was very clear, the apostle Paul was very clear that as long as we're in this life, this world is actually being ruled by that adversary. Jesus called him the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. And if we're not careful, we can fall prey to him as a victim. You mean I can lose my salvation? No, didn't say that. But let me just tell you, he is out to mess you up. He is out to take you out of the game, to immobilize you. He is out to shipwreck your faith. One of the images the apostle Peter used in his first epistle is that our adversary, the devil, is like a, you remember what it was? Roaring lion. 
Now, I want you to just ask yourself, if I was sitting in my living room and watching TV and I heard a scratch at the door and I went and got up, went to the door and opened it up and there's a roaring lion standing there, what would you do? I'm going to tell you what you wouldn't do. You wouldn't say, ah, come on in, have a beverage. You don't do that with a roaring lion. Remember, Peter was talking to Christians. And he uses an image of our enemy that is trying to destroy us. Listen, beloved, it's the reason the Apostle Paul said, flee every appearance of evil. Flee every appearance of evil, he says. The Apostle John would say, don't love this world or the things in this world. You see, it's real easy, isn't it not? Is it not? The longer we're here and the longer we wait for Christ to come back, it's, it's real easy to settle down and be at home here, right? To get cozy with the world, to just accept the influences and the temptations to evil. And when we do that, listen, we stop running. And when we stop running, our mouths stay moist. And we stop being desperate for God. Some Christians might say, oh, well, gosh, if we did all of that, we, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to have any fun in the world. And you know what? I don't think that's true, but let's assume for a second it is true. Is that a better alternative than being desperate for God? And some of us, when we... We look at the evils in culture and in our country and around us and all of these kinds of things. We have a tendency. We have a tendency to long for everything we want. We, we, we want government to fix it. We want a new political party. We want, we want there to be some answer to this that, you know, that, that comes from the outside. But we, because we're not on the run, we are, our mouths are wet. They're no longer dry and we're not desperate for God. Christ Baptist, listen to me. Stay on the run. Avoid your adversary. Flee every appearance of evil personally, in your family, in your church, in your culture. Don't fall in love with this world. Don't put down stakes here. Don't establish your roots here. Avoid your adversaries. Secondly, accept no alternatives. Accept no alternatives. Look at verse 2. My soul thirsts for God. And, and, and the psalmist almost, he almost pauses to clarify at that point. Look at it. My soul's, soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It's like he was saying, don't give me any substitute. Won't do the trick. Don't give me anything that pulls up short. He says in the middle of verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? The phrase appear before God in my English translation was actually a technical phrase. And it, it was a, a phrase that, 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 that actually represented being in the temple. Because you see it, another way to say it, and some translations say it like this, to see God face to face. Because that's what the Israelites felt like they did when they, 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 they came to the temple. It was as close as they could get to looking into the face of God. Now think about what the psalmist is saying. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When, when, will, I get, when will I get again to, to come and, and see him face to face? 
The psalmist, he, he wasn't denying some understanding of the omnipresence of God. You know what that is? The everywhereness of God. I, I think he's out there in the desert. He knew God was everywhere. Or else he wouldn't be crying out like this and praying to him. He wouldn't be pouring out his soul. He knew God was there. But there was something special about the temple. There was something special for them about the temple. And the psalmist says, I'm not going to be satisfied with anything short of that. Thankful that God's here with me. But I want to see him face to face. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to grow satisfied with substitutes, right? Might be a good church that we're a part of. Might be a good family that we get to be a part of. It might be the blessing of living in a free country like we, we get to do. It might be the fellowship that we have with a, with a, with a life group, a, a, small, a smaller group of people. And, and as long as everything is okay in those contexts, we're good to go with, with, with our relationship with God. But I want to ask you, I want to ask you today, are you, are you longing to see him face to face? Are you longing to see him and be with him in a state that is, is different from this one that we have here? It's, it's more real. It's a greater fulfillment. Are you desperate this morning to experience the presence of God in a way that maybe you haven't experienced him in a long time? Are you desperate for Jesus to come back? Or do you just get mad about politics, about laws, about this or that in this life? Or does it drive you to a desperation for an experience with God, the reality of his presence that is larger than what you know right now? There are all kinds of substitutes. Many of them are good things. But I want to say to you, Faith, uh, excuse me, Christ Baptist, I want to say to you, Accept no alternatives. Continue to long for and be desperate for the presence of God to a degree that maybe you're not experiencing right now in your individual lives, your families, in your church, in our convention, in our country, in our culture. We need God. Listen, we need God to do something that we cannot do for ourselves. Stay desperate for it. Long for him. Number three. Gets a little bit tougher here. Agonize over the absence. Agonize over the absence. Seems a tragedy, doesn't? That the cool drink of God that the psalmist longed for in verse one, at least at this point, has only led to tears. So the, the simile in verse 1 becomes a metaphor in verse 3. And all the psalmist, the only answer he gets, the only answer he gets to this longing for his soul, this desperation, is the saltiness of his own tears. My tears have been my only food. I wanted a cool, fresh drink of God, but right now 
All I've got is the taste of my own tears. And there's something that fosters that in verse 3. And you're familiar with it once I tell you about it. But notice in verse 3, he says, While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? You know what he's describing? He's describing those hunters that are chasing him down. And as, as, as the dogs are, are nipping at his heels and the arrows are flying by his head, there is something else that actually is grieving the psalmist more than the threat of his own life. And you know what it is? It's the taunting of those hunters. Because this is what they're doing. They're firing arrows and they're saying, hey man, where's your God now? The God you say is your deliverer and brought you out of Egypt, where is he now? The God you say is the God of, of unity, where's your God now? The God that you say is your father, where's your daddy now? Do you hear it today? Th those very words come from the secularist and the cynic and the agnostic and the atheist and the unbelieving world. And you know what? They're looking at us. And they know what we say. They know what we believe. They know what we claim. But then they look at the way we act sometimes. And they see the divorce rate as high inside the church as it is outside the church. They see, they see some of their Christian friends dabbling in some of the same things that they are. They see churches splitting wide open. They, 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 they see pastors leaving. They, they, they see disunity in congregations. They see sexual abuse scandals within denominations. And they are looking on from the outside saying, Oh, shoot, are you kidding me? Where is your God? Where is he? Now, you and I have some options at that point on how we respond to that. Some of us respond to it by just not listening. We're not paying attention. We just want to believe it's not true. It's not happening. Some of the rest of us want to respond to it by making an excuse for God. Oh, God is, is, is here and he's working, but he just doesn't work like he used to work. He doesn't, he doesn't do the same kinds of things. Or maybe in some religious circles, we try to whip one another into a frenzy and some emotional experience. And then when we, we pick each other up off the carpet, we say, see, you've had an experience with God. And we tell ourselves that his presence is thick. That's not the psalmist's response. I want you to see this. Notice his response to all that. My tears have been my only food day and night. The psalmist doesn't make any excuses for God. He doesn't try to explain him away. He doesn't try to twist his theology to, to give God an excuse in this deal. Do you, know what, do you know what he says? Though it's not stated here, his tears are representative of this response. Here's his response. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why he's, he's not delivered me from your hands. I, I don't know why he's, 
He's letting me stay out here in the desert and not get there to the temple. I, I, don't, I don't know why our culture is spinning out of control and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. I don't know why my country is falling apart and God doesn't seem to be active. I don't know why my church is in a mess. I don't know why my family is in disorder. I don't know why my life feels like it does. I don't know. And you know where that honest response will lead you and me, lead me? It'll lead us to the place of tears. God, we need you. We need you to show up. We need you to move. We need you, God, to do something. To do something we can't do for ourselves. Let me ask you, have you spent enough time in tears? Have you spent as much time in tears recently praying that prayer as you have complaining about the government or, or bemoaning the condition of, of society or blaming somebody else for this? Have you spent as much time weeping before God? I want to say to you, Christ Baptist, agonize, agonize over the absence. There's a redemptive element in it. Cry out to God to do something in your life, in your church, in your denomination, in your world that you can't and no church can, no pastor can, no denomination, no political party, no social reform that none of those things can do. Only he can do. Number four, and this follows from it, ask for another. Ask for another. Another what? Another visitation from God. You see in verse four? You know what the tragedy of verse four is? It's all in the past tense. I remember when I would go, he says, and I would lead the procession and be a part of that. It's all in the past tense. You know what's going on here? It's a thing called spiritual nostalgia. You know what nostalgia is, right? It's homesickness for the past. Now be careful. Because some of you right here at this point are going to think, oh yeah, that's exactly right. We need things to get back like they used to be. We need to sing the songs we used to. We need to dress like we used to. We need to bring back this. We need to bring back that. And as far as your nostalgia goes, it goes as far as your personal preference. That's not what he's dealing with. Do you know what he's homesick for? He's homesick to be able to see God face to face. And he remembers the time when he got to do it before. There's so much I could say right here. I could talk to you about the great spiritual awakenings that have happened in history, movements of God. We could talk about what happened at Asbury Seminary a few months ago and what seemed to be an outbreak of, of revival. But I, I would just get you to think, maybe even more personally right here today, do you remember a time in your life, in your Christian walk, when you longed, you were experiencing God? Not just longed for, but you were experiencing Him in a way that's deeper than you are this morning. Do you remember a time in your church's life? Not, not when, you know, the particular preferences you have were there, but do you remember a time when God seemed to be thick 
in the worship services and he seemed to be moving in power and people were getting saved less and right and Christians were repenting and, and you couldn't walk in a place like this without sensing the presence of God. Do you remember any season like that? I would ask you to go back, grab a hold of those times in your life and in the life of your church and apply them right here and let them lead you to where they led the psalmist and that is he was saying God please let me do it one more time let me get over to that temple let me get with the throngs just let me do it one more time and I want to challenge you this morning ask God for that Ask him in your prayers. Cry out to him in your thirst and in your panting. God, one more time. Let us see an awakening in this country. You've done it before and you've curbed the social ills before. It's hard for us to even imagine right now, isn't it? Hard for us to even imagine what happened in the first great awakening in, in, in England and in Scotland and Wales when social ills were curbed and people were getting saved by the thousand. Open air evangelism was inaugurated. It's hard for us to imagine the first great awakening, a second great awakening in this country when the same kind of things were happening and there was mass evangelism and people, sometimes entire towns. It's hard for me to imagine the, 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 the Welsh revival in 1904 through 1906. God used a young man by Ed, the name of Evan Roberts, Roberts to spark revival, a, a, a young preacher. And revival swept in, for a, uh, swept in like a flood. Listen, listen, the, the church, I mean, the, the, the police were so bored during those years because crime had diminished. The police were so bored, they formed themselves into singing groups and made themselves available to the churches. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? The miners literally would come out of the mines and go to the churches, sometimes to stay all night and go back to work the next day. They literally, watch this, they literally had to take the animals out of the mine and retrain them because they were used to the cursing commands of the miners and their language cleaned up so much, the, the animals didn't know what to do. It is. It's, it's almost humorous, isn't it? Because we try to look at it against the backdrop of what we're reading on the news every day, what we're seeing in our culture, what's going on around us. But God has done it before. He's done it in individual lives. He's done it in churches. He's done it in denominations. He's done it in cult countries. And he's done it in secular society. Let's ask him to do it again. Let's keep asking him to do what only he can do. And one more time to let us see a powerful movement of his presence. Now, if we stopped right there, this would kind of be a downer, wouldn't it? That's a heavy song. But there's actually one more. And it comes out of verse 5, and it's this. Listen to me, Christ Baptist. Anticipate the answer. Anticipate the answer. The psalmist almost checks himself in verse 5 and says, Wait, wait a second. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he says this, Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Isn't that good? He's still running. He's still got arrows flying at him. He's still not able to get to the temple. 
But by God's grace, our Lord brings him to this place in which he says, wait a second, I'm on the right team. I'm on the right team and I'm with the right person. And so my trust is in him. And listen to me, he wants this more than I do. Did you know that today? God wants to bring the freshness of his presence more than you want him to bring the freshness of his presence. He wants to do something in your family. He wants to do something in your church, in your denomination, in our culture, more than we want him to do it. And that gives us great confidence. How has God shown us hope in him? He's shown it to us in his son, Jesus, hasn't he? Apostle Paul says he is our hope. Peter said the same thing. We were born again to a living hope. The apostle John said, brothers, right now we are children of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we will see him as he is. And then he makes this statement. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. God has given us hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And that hope causes us to long for God to do something in our day. But listen to me, that's not in game. Our longing is to see that fulfilled, isn't it? Brought to completion, and that's only gonna happen when Jesus comes back. And we're reminded that this God, as he says in verse five, is our salvation. He's the one that has given us this. He's the one that's birthed this hope. He is the one in Christ Jesus that we must be confident in. We trust him. And so we long for him to do something that nobody else can do, including ourselves. Christ Baptist, I compel you be desperate for him to do that. Let's pray together. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, I pray that in these moments of response, you would turn your heart afresh to him, resolve anew in the midst of your burden, your longing, your desperation to be desperate for him. If you've been overhearing this message today, either in this room or maybe online, and you know when you put your head on your pillow at night, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. We want you to know this hope, a hope that can only come in Jesus, who did for us what we cannot do for ourselves, died a death we should have died, rose from the dead in order to put the life of God and the hope of God back inside of us. And our prayer this morning is that right now in these moments, you would turn your heart to God in repentance and faith and trust Jesus to save you and give you a hope, the only hope that is lasting. Lord, these are our prayers. Our need is for you. We long for you, God. Please 
We long for you to show up in our midst, in our lives, in our world in a way that we've not seen you do in a while. Your children wait. We wait, Lord, in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.